The Clone Podcast. Change your way. Today I'll be interviewing journalist and writer Jessie Tu. She's taught at refugee camps in the Middle East, volunteered with AusAid in the Solomon Islands, travelled to complete writing residencies in the US and now works as a journalist at Women's Agenda. Her debut novel, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing, was released in 2020 and is now nominated for a Stella Prize. You were born in Taiwan, Mm -hmm. but you moved to Australia at the age of five. What are some of your first memories of living in Australia? And did you experience a kind of culture shock when you got here? So I think I was around four, four or five, um, maybe four and a half when we arrived. And our first place of residence was actually in Melbourne. So we lived for a year in Melbourne before moving to Sydney. My first memories were probably of like going to the Safeway in, <laughs> in queue. I think our first house was like a rental in queue. And um, I think I don't really remember any specific memories. It was mostly um, a vibe if I had to try and, you know, carve out some sort of tenor or tone of that period in my life because I don't really have specific memories. Maybe it's like too young, you know. I don't think I had any culture shock because I didn't go to school then. I was still in preschool. I was very like nurtured back at home. Um, I have three older siblings and they went to school so I think that they must have felt more culture shock. Um, Whereas I was just like spending most of my days with mum and dad. So it was just like a time of deep like nourishment and a lot of joy I think. When you went to school did you know how to speak English? No I didn't yeah I think I think I remember like towards the end of that first year in Melbourne um, we went to the school called Waverley North Public School which I think is no longer a school um, and I was in kindergarten and I don't actually remember being able to string a sentence together but I, I think one clear memory I did have was um, being getting in trouble by like being shamed by my teacher because like one of the uh, coloring books that we were made to do was like um, one of those exercise books where you had to like there were pictures of sort of animated objects like and this one page had a picture of three um, motorcycles and then on the top it must have said like draw um, color in two um, two reds and one blue and the motorcycles okay. and and I actually did it the other way I colored in two red and one blue and the I just remember the teacher like taking like holding up my book and saying everyone stop what you're doing look what Jessie did she did it wrong like don't do this you need to read the instructions properly and that public shame yeah I know that has stuck with me like I think um, every I can think back to a lot of moments in my schooling where teachers have done that you know like publicly shamed mm. mistakes and I just think it's like it's something that I carry like I just not something I think about you know often but it's still something that that bodily sort of shame is still something I carry with yeah you? yeah mm. yeah and do you think that that's linked to the 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 language barrier at that time that yeah you it felt must have been yeah and uh, having a, a white teacher who wasn't very kind <laughs> or sympathetic mm. yeah to that and and at that young age was writing a part of your life or no, I don't think so. I think um, when I finished the rest of my kindergarten um, years in Sydney, I remember like one of the exercises we had to do was like construct sentences. And I remember distinctly this one day, like when we did have to do it, 
not knowing how to construct a sentence because I didn't know how to spell. Like I still remember not knowing what the alphabet was, you know? So like having that kind of alienation made me really scared because it made me feel like I wasn't able to show people that I was like just as kind of valid and intelligent as the rest of them. Just because I didn't have the English language didn't necessarily mean that I was dumb, you know? But it's hard when you don't communicate in that language, people don't understand you, you know? Mm. And at what age did you feel like you recognized that you were a talented writer, that you were able to write and that writing sort of became a part of your fabric in everyday life? Um, I would never call myself talented. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would call you talented. Oh, um, I think I just have a love for it. And if you naturally have a love of something, it can c so easily come across as talent, you know, in mm. the eyes of others. Because when you love something, you want to do it all the time and invariably when you do something all the time, you become very good at it, you know? I sort of knew maybe towards my later 20s, like only in the last few years did I really develop this confidence in my ability to construct good sentences. And it was after years of seeing a lot of books being published where I thought I could, not, not like I could do better, but just like this person wrote this and people you know, some people love it, some people hate it, you know, like the metric upon which literature is measured is so wide and varied. And so like, instead of saying, I need to be as good as someone or other like Shakespeare, I sort of decided to not ask that question, but instead say, what can I contribute in my own voice? And it doesn't have to be comparable to anyone else's. A lot of people say to me like, oh, it's so hard because I feel fear judgment, you know, but um, I just don't think it, like for me, I don't try and uh, seek other people's approval because you're always going to have some, at least one person not like your work, you know? So it's just like, um, you're always going to have someone, even if you're someone who's nice and kind, you're always going to have someone who doesn't necessarily like you, you know, and that's okay. Who cares, mm -hmm. you know? Being comfortable being someone who's not always liked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You started your first career as a teacher mm. Um, and you were a trained violinist and a music teacher. Was that, what draw, drew you to that career? Or was that in your mind a career of necessity? I fell into that um, because at the end of high school, I was still playing the violin very rigorously and wanted to become a professional. During my uni years, I did perform as a professional musician across multiple orchestras. I played in gigs. Um, it was a very kind of, unstable lifestyle and that kind of turned me off it slightly um, like not knowing when my next gig was was kind of like that sense of uncertainty I realized wasn't something that I sat with very well mm. and it's so competitive like especially in Australia where classical music is so such a small community you know everyone knows each other the opportunities are scarce um, so I fell into teaching because um, at the end of my uh, degree I was, um, I, I think I must have like um, sent my resume in, in one of the schools and I just got a call back and they said, come in, teach three days a week. And I started by teaching primary school strings. So like eight year olds at a girl's school. And it was so much fun. It was just so much fun. Like I, I remember the first couple of years teaching primary age kids. I was like, I can't believe I'm being paid to have fun with mm. kids. Um, and I always thought that, you know, like um, passion is not anything if it's not shared. And so I f found a lot of like joy from sharing my passion of music with young kids. But like, I guess um, after a 
few years, I kind of just got bored of it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so is that what inspired your, what some would say, or what a lot of people would say, a bold move to leave teaching and to become a journalist and writer professionally? I, I wouldn't call my trajectory like, I wouldn't say bold, I would say it was more like just um, a pivot of some sort that I kind of took because I put all my feelers out there, um, because I did a lot of online workshops, you know, like one of the first workshops that gave me the confidence to pitch to big publications like The Guardian when I started freelancing as a journalist was like taking an online course with um, ben Benjamin Law about like how to succeed as an online um, freelance journalist. That was really helpful. Um, but also like going overseas and applying for residencies and learning the craft of writing gave me a lot of confidence to you know, believe that I could do this on the side. So initially it was like, I'll teach a few days a week and then write on the side. But it came to the point where I really wanted to pursue this seriously. And so I gave, like, I think I spent a, a few months just freelancing and it was really fun, but also like super stressful, you know, not like, again, not knowing, you know, if you'd get paid a certain amount month, month to month, you know, but, um, but yeah, I applied for a job at Women's Agenda and um, fortunately got it. I'd like to talk to you about your debut book, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. I remember reading it for the first time and really connecting with your protagonist, Jenna. Mm. And Jenna is a sex addict, um, a musical prodigy, and some people have said she's an unlikable character, but mm. I had a deep sense of empathy for her and I think that was because of what I perceived as her sense of existential loneliness and longing. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, why did you create a protagonist that has this unsatiable sense of, of loneliness and longing? Um, because I think I wanted to examine myself and so I put it into that character. Like I'm not saying Jenna is me, she, a lot of what she goes through, like her internal struggles were these struggles that I went through myself. Um, I would say just like um, the the fact that she's a prodigy and the, the the amount of sex that she has is completely not what I <laughs> went through. <laughs> I think I just like made her into a character um, that was based on myself, but then like um, expanded on that. Like she's way more bold. She's way more like um, confident, but also destructive in her ways. You know, her pursuing relationships that were very very unhealthy and damaging. The reason I wrote that character was because I really struggled with loneliness for so long in my 20s and not knowing how to address it in a meaningful way. You know, like feeling as though my myself, my identity as a 27-year-old, like deeply lonely and hungry and ambitious woman and not feeling like I belonged was something that I really detested. Like I felt like I was being told that I wasn't worthy, that my my sense of longing for things, you know, be it sex or food or friendship or whatever, living with this constant um, dissatisfaction, I feel as though, in at least in Australia, I felt like that was something that I had to hide. And I didn't want to hide that. I feel like that was something I wanted to not necessarily celebrate, but just put on the page. Has that changed your attitude towards loneliness and longing do you still Actually, feel that yeah sense? no I, I think I, yeah there are moments, still moments where i do feel lonely like um it, and it comes it comes so suddenly you know and i recognize it and then i think um i i don't know if my relationship with loneliness 
is better. I think um, I'm better at kind of recognizing it and understanding that it will pass. I think that's ultimately what is a good skill to have, like knowing that mm. it's an emotion that will eventually pass and not feeling bad for feeling it, even though, you know, I have a great partner, I have great friends, I have great family, like my career is going very well, you know, I'm very fortunate and yet still there are days where I feel deeply lonely. Do you feel any kind of catharsis putting those experiences on the page? Like, is that part totally. of the feeling? Yeah, yeah. I think um, recently when I was working on my second novel, which is one that was born from a sense of shame, and I wanted to expel that shame from a relationship that was in my 20s, I realised that the reason why I write, um, the kind of novelistic inquiry that I have when I open up a book and decide to write a novel, is dispelling that shame. It's like trying to understand it and make it mean something extracting it from like my chest and putting it on the page hopefully f making sense of it when I like see that this is something that um, I went through but it's not necessarily inherent to who I am. There's been some discussion of Jenna as an unlikable character and I think that this is laced with misogyny and mm. when it comes from women it's mm. laced with internalized misogyny. How important was, was it to you to create a character that was sometimes uncompromisingly selfish and a true advocate for herself and her desires. I feel like it's so it's such a it's such a double standard when you know a man operates his life on his own terms. He's never called selfish. You know, he's someone who's in control, and he is rewarded and celebrated for having this kind of command over his life. Whereas when a woman does that, it's like selfish, uh, and it's a bad thing. And I hate that. It's just it doesn't make sense to me that. Even now in today's, like, it's now like more than 100 years since the first wave of feminism and we're still like attacking a woman for setting her own terms in her own life. And that, that, that could be t called selfish is still sort of, it makes me s kind of shrink in anger, I think, um, mm. and cringe. Yeah. And, and this whole unlikability thing really enrages me because when you call someone unlikable or when you call a character unlikable, especially a woman, what you're saying is basically um, that she's not complying to your ideas of what a woman should be you know that's all like she's not being accommodating to you that's all it means right when you say oh, I don't really like her it just means she doesn't um, behave in a way that you think a woman should behave mm. and I'm not interested in, in living a life or writing female characters where a woman um, is likable that's so boring right it is boring <laughs> it's so boring yeah and what you said really resonated with me, this idea that to be likable is just to be kind of a reflection of what you value. Yeah, so it's really yeah. a reflection of sort of social norms and social conventions. So to be abnormal yeah. in a way is kind of, and to write characters which are perceived in that way mm, mm. is challenging to the status quo, yeah, which is yeah. a great thing. Your first novel, A Lonely Girl, centers around the experience of an Asian Australian woman and I think that is also extremely important mm. because there aren't many Asian Australian stories being told. How do you think there can be more stories of Asian Australian women um, told in the mainstream kind of literary environment? Um, I think people have to, the, the funding bodies and the producers the directors or the creative artists, um, they need to actively seek out and kind of um, reach out for these voices because they're out there. Um, I don't believe that there's a, a scarcity of these women 
out there who want to say something. It's just they're out there, but they might not necessarily have the means to approach people in power who, you know, dictate what is platformed and what isn't. So um, I have like a lot of, I think I have a lot of hope and optimism that Australia as a broader society and culturally and artistically speaking are I wouldn't say that um, people are always saying, oh, are Australians generally hungry for diverse voices? But like, I don't like to call them diverse voices. Like, I'm not a diverse voice. Just because I'm Asian doesn't mean I'm diverse. Like, yes, it means that it's diverse because um, white people have caught, put me into this category, you know, of a marginalised person. But I don't see myself as that. I see myself as, like, what I try and do as writing to my own truth and therefore speaking to... Okay, if I speak to one person, then I speak to a universality. You know, I'm mm. not trying to do anything else. You write a lot about sex and talk a lot about sex. And I guess Asian Australian or Asian women are often fetishized mm. and I guess seen as passive objects of sexual desire. So do you see that as challenging those kind of stereotypes? I often think if I was a guy, if I was born a man, would I write? And perhaps not because so much of why I write is because I'm angry and the reason I'm angry is because I live in a female body and um, I've seen and felt and experienced the history of um, female um, suppression and repression and oppression in, in a lot of forms and so um, I think the reason why I was so motivated to write this character who was really taking her own sexual powers in her own hands was because like I grew up just watching you know, the white gaze, um, and whenever they looked at the Asian body, it was always infantilized, very passive, it never had its own voice or agency. And that was deeply insulting and patronizing for me. You know, I see myself, and I'm a woman as well, just like any other human being, right, um, of any race. And, and to be shown that for most of your life is really quite damaging. And it made me so angry that I just wanted to write something against that to mm. challenge people's ideas of what an Asian woman can look like. So given that you often write out of anger, mm. is there anything that is completely off limits? Often people ask me before an interview um, when I go to festivals and panels, like, is there anything that you're uncomfortable talking about? There isn't. Because like, I have often believed and still continue to believe that the world would be a less lonely place if people were just open about everything. like you know, um, whatever happens in the bedroom, I think should be like, I, I think I'm still trying to decide whether this is a good thing. Cause like maybe there are elements of things you do with your partner that are private, you know, but I kind of still wish that there are aspects of what happens within our most pr private lives that we, I wish that we were all more um, open about. Cause I think the moment you're more open about it, then you feel less lonely because you realize that other people also struggle with what you're struggling with. Hmm. And I guess that process of, of writing about and having it represented and reflected back onto you kind of can extend these categories of, of normalcy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Back to the topic of writing, do you think that the act of writing is innately political? Yeah, absolutely. I think living in a female body and having a voice is political. Mm. Because for so long, um, we haven't been given a voice. The patriarchy, it's, it's, it's a system where basically every day the world, the infrastructure of the society is built in like actively denying the female body a voice or like agency, you know, like 
women couldn't get passports without some a male person in their family. Um, uh, we couldn't vote until like a hundred years ago, um, and Indigenous women had like only the vote uh, uh, like much you know later. Whenever, if you're a woman and you speak out, and you make art in any form, you know, be it visual arts or music or writing or filmmaking, I think it is deeply inherently political and brave. Well, yeah, I'm trying to actually not, like a lot of people have, I've noticed in the last few years, a lot of commentary around when women, whenever they come out to speak the truth. Honesty is seen as this thing that women are labeled as brave or like courageous. They, they don't ever do that with men, you know, when a male writes something or, or like speaks his truth, I don't think that he's called brave. I'm That's trying, true. Yeah, I'm trying to not like call a woman brave anymore, like because, um, I want to kind of normalize mm. the sharing of women's voices and, you know, vocalizing whatever it is that we've suppressed for so long. So you're currently a journalist with Women's Agenda. I wanted to ask you what your hopes and thoughts on the future of, of journalism is, because uh, I guess there's a parallel between journalism and creative writing, mm. but they are distinct spheres and industries at the mm. same time. I still see like Australia uh, has a long way to go in terms of representation. Um, most of the masthead of major publications in across News Corp and you know um, even literary journals are mostly made up of white middle class people, um, and which for me like I I I understand why that happens. It's a systemic reason, you know. Only a certain cohort of people can afford to be so badly paid because it's not—it's often just not a you know well-paid job, you know, journalism. Um, but that also narrows this—the spectrum of what um, the wider society have perspectives into. You know, if we only have um, a certain cohort, a very narrow cohort of people adjudicating what's going on in the world, then you're going to only have a very small framework upon which like someone, through, through which someone's you know, lens is that they see the world. And so they only pick up a certain thing, which then they write about, you know, and then, when, and then we end up reading about their perspective. You know, like I feel like um, journalism is not at all objective. Mm -hmm. You know, like I know that this is something that models of journalism have come to terms with, but um, I just don't understand how, like, there was a big reckoning in the States last year with, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and major publications realizing that they need more black, brown, um, marginalized um, reporters on the scene, you know. But I can't believe that it took something like that for people to realize the importance of, you know, a diverse range of journalists. It's mm. just still really, for me, that, that kind of lack of understanding of how important it is to have journalists of different races and abilities and sexualities uh, that kind of is like a egregious injustice I think. Mm, yeah. I agree and it's interesting when I was listening to you saying that you use that word diverse that mm. you said you know you yourself don't want to be cast as diverse and you don't see yourself as diverse and I kind of was thinking sometimes we don't even have the language to describe what a different kind of normal yeah. would look like. Yeah, exactly. Finally, I want to ask you what your current projects are. What are you working on? 
Um, I'm working on a second novel. I uh, just finished the first draft, which is super exciting. I wrote it during the pandemic. Awesome. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, all I can say about it now is that it's about uh, a cult. And it's also about classical musicians. <laughs> Ooh, okay, that's yeah. very exciting. I'm always yeah. interested in cults. Yeah, yeah, cults are really interesting. I think a lot of people are interested because it kind of there's so there's a part of all of us I think that are um, that have a tendency and a potential to be drawn to cults because they are ostensibly places where you feel like you belong, right? And all of us want to belong. Mm. So, um, so yeah, it's such an interesting space and. Um, I'm slowly working on it. Um, the second time around is really nice, different in a nice way, I think, like kind of getting more clarity and understanding that it takes a lot of time to just sit with a character and being okay with that, yeah. Well, Jessie, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me.